it's leadership's job not to like dictate that plan and every decision. They can define the mountain. That's fine. But they don't need to define the path up the mountain, right? Let the data dictate that. And so that, again, doesn't have to be the type of organization that you work in. Like you can grow an organization in other ways. But if you want to grow it in a world of true experimentation culture, you're letting data come from experimentation as that tool in the hand of that, the person on the front line. Let's do this. Welcome to Hello Content by T3 Custom, the podcast that explores the forces shaping the future of content with content superstars about strategy tips, deep insights, technological breakthroughs, and even their wildest predictions. I'm your host, Kevin Warren. Let's do this. As the first digital content era of nearly 30 years comes to a close, I think it's safe to say things are going to be looking very, very different from here. We spent some time in previous episodes talking to guests about how to get buy-in on new ideas as well as how to foster a culture of experimentation against a backdrop of resistance and status quo mentalities. But now, thanks to the explosion in generative AI tools like ChatGPT and Claude, we find ourselves in a period of forced experimentation where new ideas are not only welcome, but necessary for survival. Perhaps it's a stretch to call it a content renaissance just yet, but at a minimum, we're in a collective group rethink of the way things have been done and how we should reach information seekers going forward. The punchline? Brands who don't figure out how to integrate generative AI in the workflow and offer more for less will lose out and go the way of the dinosaur. So if branded content strategies must change in this new environment, the question is how? What are the new best practices in an industry that's only a few months old now? And what is the best way to mobilize your team and get them working towards a new North Star while preserving the culture of success that got you here? To help me answer some of these questions, we reached out to Ben LeBay of Spiro, a firm whose entire model is around experimental content marketing. Ben is the managing director of Spiro, and he has a background in environmental research. As an undergraduate, he studied evolution and behavior sciences, and he got his master's in conservation science and biostatistics. If there was anyone who could help us wrap our heads around how to figure out where to go from here, from both a quantitative and qualitative point of view, Ben is the guy. So sit back and enjoy the interview. Let's do this. Hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here, Kevin. Great, great. Well, listen, your specialty is directly in experimentation and helping brands pivot and or try new things, correct? Correct. That's right. right. Tell us a little bit about what makes you an expert in experimentation and how you ended up with Spiro and and sort of the role they play in, in helping brands move forward. Yeah, Spiro works with marketing teams. Uh, the hammer in our hands is experimentation, a lot of A-B testing, but ultimately using data to help marketers make better, faster decisions. And so we kind of go into a marketing org and say, like, how can we make your org with the same headcount ship twice as many tests, ship twice as many campaigns, uh, and play as we do it? Let's disrupt, let's change behaviors, let's change perceptions and measure those changes uh, so we can kind of adapt to the market, adapt to different opportunities, and help that team just run better and cycle through their work better. So I came to Spiro from a weird place. Uh, I was in academia for about 10 years before I kind of jumped ship and got into the marketing world. So my background is research science. I was doing conservation resource science for the Department of the Interior through the University of Texas here in Austin for many years, doing a lot of modeling, a lot of MI modeling, a lot of what we call AI modeling uh, work, uh, climate change modeling, for example, back six, seven years ago, and then back 
10 years prior to that. So a 10 year chunk of time doing a lot of data work. And so my background is in stats and, and models and working with data at that time, helping decision makers understand where to place conservation dollars, like, you know, millions and millions of dollars with uh, federal and state funding. Uh, so now I help marketers do the same thing, take data and help them make decisions on where they put their calories and resources. And so the the, the skill set sort of transferred really well. Uh, the The underlying thread of it is understanding kind of the how to use data, how not to use data, uh, understand that data is, um, you know, the different facets of it, the pitfalls of it, the data traps and things like that. So I come from a technical, but not like web marketing technical definition of technical background, right? So the technical background for a marketer is like dev tech and, and understanding tools and understanding like JavaScript and all this stuff. That's not my technical side. I come from like the data, understanding how to use data, where to use data and think about making better decisions with data. And so the story arc over the last six years is just running. I still am very uh, in touch on the ground with a few clients, um, but I'm also growing the agency. uh, So managing the firm. What would be some of the data traps that you sort of come across that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you can get into the classical statistical data traps of uh, making decisions on uh, data that it's uh, you don't have enough data or you have too much data, right? So not enough data, your statistics aren't just there. You're drawing um, inference and ultimately you're probably relying more on your confirmation bias than you are actual uh, an understanding of of the picture of the world that that statistic is supposed to represent, right? Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. Confirmation bias is the evil that lurks behind. The- yeah, that's the number one enemy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great enemy. The, the flip side is I think probably great parallels or, or great use in the content marketing world is too much data, too much information, cognitive overload, um, paralysis by analysis uh, and that side of things. Uh, so there's two sides of the coin on, on data traps, um, and that, that kind of pins the spectrum, I would say. There's some other dimensions, but that's, that's a good framing. Well, the thing that uh, drew us to bringing you into the show was your knack for your, your discussions around uh, experimentation, particularly on all of your LinkedIn posts and such. And um, we find, find that to be extremely important, especially with the world we find ourselves in right now. So like it or not, firms have been thrown into experimentation now with thanks to generative AI and chat GPT over the last couple of months. We've done a lot of talking about this and maybe maybe a little bit too much, but from the content side, it's really interesting because we've worked with a lot of clients in the past who don't want to change and it can take an act of Congress to get them to change. We've worked with large enterprises before the show we were talking about, you know, some of the smaller firms may not, they're more nimble and they, they're more, you know, likely to experiment. But it doesn't feel like we have a choice anymore. If we don't adapt to a post-chat GPT world, at least content producers, it, we're going to get left behind. Or firms that don't adopt are going to get left behind. So they're thrown into this, this world of experimentation and what's happening right now. I would imagine you guys are seeing a lot of opportunity in that. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, we are. And there's there's some different, I would say, layers to the cake and, and with how you can experiment or, or thinking about where to experiment on for a digital surface, for example, and and that could apply to like a, a website or an email campaign, any kind of digital journey that you can think about. There's different, I guess, dimensions where you can experiment. And some areas make sense for AI and some don't. And the way that you experiment on it, the way that you measure on it, there's certain areas that are, again, more useful than not. So, for example, if you have a website and you've got some core pieces of it, 
it's not a great fit for AI. You're not asking a lot of questions every day about those core pieces. You're looking to to create one winner or you know and and, and implement. I think about like a information architecture of a website, or, or let's say you've got a down funnel checkout form that the structure uh, is relatively set. Uh, you're looking to to know what's working and what's not. So the causal inference is, is your tool there. And that, that's a straight up A-B testing. So core functionality, or you're looking to test one platform versus another, and you're not going to, you're not going to constantly bounce back and forth between them. One pricing algorithm versus another, one pricing model versus another, something like that. Something that's quite core to the business that you're not looking to jockey around with. The another surface area or opportunity area for experimentation is sort of rule-based things. Uh, so think about like digital onboarding for a SaaS company. Depending on where you are, um, the content that is shown to an individual as they are going through a structured journey, uh, that is going to be the model that's there, like the GPT equivalent that is powering what content is shown, is going to be trained on a pretty limited set of data. Uh, so it's quite a, a simple thing going on. So rules-based things, rules-based work, rules-based experimentation is good enough in, the, in that situation, and it's probably quite appropriate. But when you get into the content world, when you back up and you think about the creative shown um, on ads, on, on maybe some landing page blocks, that's where GPT types of technologies and also I would say over the past five to 10 years, there's a lot of existing AI, ML technologies within many uh, experimentation platforms that are already doing this. And what they're doing is, you, you know, they're, they need data for the training set, right? So then they're using data that's available through that client or that organization's data warehouse to, to, to do what they do. Uh, now that the API of GPT released like last week, I think. Now mm-hmm. what they can do is tap that API and, and start to feed it into to responses and start having conversations. And so I see chat, I see a lot of messaging areas. In fact, our sister company, Winter, is tapping into that and looking to jump on that bandwagon, so to speak. And uh, like you said, like take advantage of that opportunity. Right now, we know the generative text or generative content you know, production is here to stay. And we know what the benefits are immediately to budgets, to efficiencies, to things that we've never really been able to do before in a way that we've never been able to do before. So I feel like, you know, those companies that did not want to change, everything was going fine. Maybe they were even complacent and and the, the marketing machine was working great. They now find themselves in this world of of change that they have to be a part of. And if they don't, they will probably get left behind. At least a good majority of them will. So what would you be advising your clients in this stage about sort of what to do next in this world we find ourselves in. It's almost forced experimentation. They don't have a choice now. Yeah. So from the content angle, agreed. And I'm not a content marketing professional at all. And, and so from, from that side, agreed. From the experimentation side and thinking about delivering what's produced onto like a web surface, for example, the experimentation is like pairing up classical causal inference ma- machinery, like the classic A-B testing with more dynamic tools, like the tools that will serve and tap into the chat GPT technologies directly uh, and serve it up alongside that. And so that's what we're playing with right now. And that's where, I guess, as you stated, like being forced to experiment with different ways, being forced not to think about the status quo. Well, if, from my world, the status quo 
is running an experimentation program with like A-B testing and you're making big bets, you're taking big bets, but you're not doing it at the speed in which you're able to do it with these dynamic tools. And so that's in my world where, where things are changing and the conversation is if we can use these other set of tools to, uh, instead of running like 10 A-B tests a month, let's think about running like 50 or 100 and, and the equivalent of it, right? It's not the same as an A-B test um, using these some of these tools. Your certainty is not as pinned down. It's a little bit broad. You're not, you're not as like uh, scientific or academic about it, I'll, I'll say. But you're able, the trade-off is you're able to go a lot faster. And, and so I think that from like a content engine standpoint, that's where a lot of these content marketing agencies are having conversations, I think. It's like we can, you know, with ChatGPT, we can just crank up the speed, right? But We can crank up the, the A-B tests, yeah, a lot more, a lot faster. Yeah, speed is the big thing on, on this technology, I think. And that's what's going to change the game and, like you said, leave, leave people behind. You know, we mentioned something about confirmation bias a moment ago. I want to go back to that question because there was something that happened um, with a rather large client of ours. We ran into a situation where we were up against a competing firm, a competing agency, and they, they, two agencies were in the same room in one of our annual get-togethers with our client, and we weren't expecting this. What we hadn't realized was we had a very specific photographic brand for a particular blog site. Um, we had very particular types of content that was supposed to go on there. We had sort of proven records of, you know, we had data to support like the kinds of, of conceptual photography that we were using. They had an idea that we needed to change the type of photography. For some reason, they ran a test. It was an A-B test, according to them. And they put a photo from one of our other articles into a, a fake article. And that was what they did. It was one article, two photos with a group of about, you know, a couple hundred people. And the end result was we changed our photographic brand because of that one picture. So clearly this is an example of like, okay, one article, one piece of content doesn't make for a good test. What is sort of a minimum viable test that you, where you would say, hey, this is actually enough evidence to support the need for change. Let's go run some experiments. What's a better process? Yeah. To me, that was a lot of confirmation bias. Is there a better A-B process? Yeah, confirmation bias is a good one. Like uh, in, in general, it's not a good practice to look around for data to prove your point. <laughs> if it's just a couple hundred each, and it could depend on the, the, the metric that you're aiming at. So a couple hundred each is your denominator. So like, what's your numerator? Like, what are you, you're looking for click-through, you're looking for conversion, you're looking for, you know, so that, that stat will, will help you determine if it's valid or not, right? And in that case, you're, you're hoping for a massive conversion because a couple hundred uh, in your denominator is not a lot. That's not a big sample size. And so if you're looking, you know, to run that and if it's confirmation bias, like you said, the stats should tell you how valid that, that is or not. But I think the approach there is, is statistics. Statistics is the measure of sensitivity. So you had one experience, right? The experience is you sent this, this data out there, you got feedback back. That feedback said, this is the better, better one to work with. You know, but that was one experience. The, the, the statistic is, is it tells you the sensitivity of it. Mm -hmm. And got it. the mental model there is, uh, it's a fun one, like no, knowledge equals experience plus sensitivity. That's a Viktor Frankl quote. And so that statistics, that's a big like stats geek kind of thing. That's where you would poke and that's where you would question and whether that's confirmation bias, whether it's repeatable. So how I would go about like, I don't know, pushing back there is uh, first push on the stats, maybe see if it's repeatable. What's the hypothesis? Is the lifestyle image 
um, meant to resonate because X, Y, Z, you know, like understand that hypothesis and then turn the volume up to 11. Okay, if that, then this would actually be a bigger impact. And let's try that. So keep keep going down that road and see seeing what happens. Got it. Got it. Once on board, let's say that you somebody like going back to sort of the team experimentation culture, right? How do you mobilize a team? Um, I know that you're more on the technical side of things, but do you have any recommendations around how to mobilize a team to be on the same page and change course together in one direction once it's been decided that we need to change? Yeah, I like that question a lot. I've been thinking a lot about that question and, and versions of it, I guess my versions of it for a little bit now. I think there are there is a recipe for it. So first of all, you know, if you've got a team, you're you've got a team because you are running a bunch of flywheels currently. You're running a business. You've got revenue. You've got P, a PNL. There are certain activities that you're doing right, and you you're doing those activities. You've got pipelines of and you're shipping things like developers are shipping code, um, advertisers and marketers are shipping like campaigns or, and events and things like this, content, whatever. So you've got these pipelines of things that are already going on. And I, I think the first step is to, you're thinking about from a data standpoint, the first th- standpoint is to categorize everything uh, and sort of map it out. Because uh, if you're going to have a conversation with your team that you want to take this big bet and go towards developing this this whole new weird thing over here, uh, you have to like lay the map out and, tell, and be able to, to orient everyone on that map towards like, oh, this is where we are and this is where I want to go. So if you say like, okay, we've got XYZ pipeline of content that we're pushing on. This one, we're, we're, let's keep on iterating on it. Um, here's like two or three that we've got some s- substantial bets around. Um, so let's keep that in the pipeline. We've got some projects around that. But we need to take some disruptive moves. And so let's put like 60% of our effort on optimizing and iteration on the current uh, pipeline of, of work. Let's maintain these two projects that are kind of substantial bets, um, but but they're let's still resource them with 20%. Let's carve off like X amount of calories in 20% or whatever of our time for these disruptive bets. So you've got iterative tag, substantial tag, disruptive tag, right? There's your map, right? So let's take a portfolio approach to what we're working on, just like an investment uh, from an investment standpoint. So you map out all of your work like that. And then you can have that honest conversation of like, this thing is disruptive. This is a bet. We're going to probably fail or we're not going to fail. We're going to fail our way to success. Yeah. Expect to fail, but budget for that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so we do this with our experimentation programs. And so you've got what's called a solution spectrum and we we use those tags. Uh, So a lot of our experiments are iterative. Uh, They're kind of boring. They're looking, they're focused on margins, right? They're focused on optimization. The substantial ones is adding net new content. It's like, you know, a, a new a new blade, a new, like, like, we've never done lifestyle imagery. Let's try lifestyle imagery. Like, we don't have this class of social proof. Let's slam it in there. So this is substantial. So net new content, but it's not like a whole new product, right? That That's different. Right. That's disruptive. Right. So, so now let's tag that type of thing as disruptive. And then you got the tagging system. You have a map for your team to understand where to place those calories. Um, so that's the beginning of the conversation for that change management and understanding the trade-offs it takes to take those big bets. That's great. I love the portfolio concept. I, you know, whether it was our experimentation with photos, you don't want to replace 
right away. Just because you took a test and with like a couple of articles, you know, or a couple of pieces of content, put it in front of a couple hundred people. What that should have told them is, hey, we should explore this some more and mm-hmm. run more tests, you know, side by side, you know, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think you're you're dancing around this topic that I, I like a lot. And earlier you talked about like evolving with the changing environment of like, for, for example, these AI tools coming into the to the market. You're talking about like the struggle of getting a team to change on what they're doing and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think there's different ways to grow a company. Uh, there's the, the the seminal book um, Built to Last goes into like a framework of like you can you can set goals, which is defining a mountain, and you figure out how to climb it. You can uh, optimize so that the concept of like good enough never never is, and so you just you have a target. Uh, that's the goal thing. You, optimization is just you're like you're chinking away at it, uh, and then there's the third tier which is rare, but it, are in the companies that last. So the book is called Built to Last. Uh, this evolutionary tool, right? So you, you try things and see what sticks. You, you have happy accidents. You allow failure you, you know, as a feature, not a bug. And in that way, you know what the enemy is, I think? And so when you're doing that, when, when failure is a feature, not a bug, you're using data to help evolve. Like you're using you're you're using data to pivot and to to move and and to adapt and everything like that. You know what the enemy there is? I, I think the enemy there is planning. Um, I kind of want to blame like hippos and leadership and 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 things like that, but I think the enemy is actually planning. What do you there's, mean by that? Yeah. So there's this anecdote or this story that's in my mind that that won't leave it. I read this book um, last year called Nine Lies About Work and one of the lies about work is this this idea that we need a plan and the the flip side of not having a plan is letting data tell you where to go Um, but you have to run an organization a little differently like you can run an organization with with like an autocratic rule like with a dictator and there's plenty of organizations that are very successful in doing that Uh, they might not be very fun to work with that's not maybe the organization that a modern worker wants to be in the one where experimentation of using data to drive the ship, to adapt, to pivot, that's an interesting one that the kind of the modern tech worker wants to be at. Um, there's more autonomy in work um, because they have the tool to make the decision. The decision is not coming from the top. It's not coming from the plan. They have the tool to collect the data to make the decision at the ground level, at the front line. So the story from that book is a story of General McChrystal in the Iraq War. When he came in, they were, it was something, I'm gonna butcher the stats, but when he came in, they were doing like 15 raids a month in the villages in, in, in Iraq. And he, he came in and he quickly instituted a daily meeting. Get this, this is, this is crazy. The two hour meeting with 2,000 people. What? Virtual meeting. Yeah, yeah. It's like the opposite of anything that anybody wants to be in. But what happened was it was structured in the sense of like a bunch of these core people had like a two-minute little window to give a little data update. And so everyone was doing these like really quick, hyper quick sync syncs on on data on where I think people were. And 2,000 people. So there's a lot of frontline people with data at their disposal in that meeting, suddenly accessible to everyone else's frontline data. So the number of, why only 15 raids a month? Well, they, okay, we found there's a terrorist group here. Let's get, let's plan. Look, okay, you get over here. We got to get our materials here. We got to get our troops here. It was so much planning. It just didn't work. 
by the time they got to that place, like the terrorists had moved. And so he came and he instituted that meeting structure. The data was accessible to everybody. And they went to like 300 raids a month um, within like a six month period. They were able to act quick, act faster. They were able to mobilize together, act more quickly. The data told them where to go instantaneously as opposed to waiting. Data told them where to go. So, so here's, the, here's the rub. It's the leadership's job not to make the decision, uh, but to provide data to the people on the front line. Who are the people on the front line in a marketing organization? It's the product owners. It's the marketers. It's the content producers. It's leadership's job not to like dictate that plan and every decision. They can define the mountain. That's fine. Uh, but they don't need to define the path up the mountain, right? Let the data dictate that. And so that, again, doesn't have to be the type of organization that you work in. Like you can grow an organization in other ways. But if you want to grow it in a world of true experimentation culture, you're letting data come from experimentation as that tool in the hand of that, the person on the front line. You're not only on the, the solution spectrum of the tweaking, you're allowing people to make big bets. Yeah. How do you get there if you haven't previously had that kind of culture in your organization? Like what's the starting point? It can be ground up, it can be bottom up or top down. A lot of times it's top down. I mean, a lot of the organizations that we work, a lot of these we work with a lot of these hyper growth startups, I would say. So, so companies mm-hmm. like uh, Miro.com and MongoDB and Procore mm-hmm. and, and, and OutSystems and ServiceNow and uh, these, these like fast growing like SaaS lead gen start. I mean, they're just kind of, they're at like series like C, D, E. And they're, they're, what, mm-hmm. what's happening is that they're growing to the stage in which it's the first time in their organization where leadership needs to transition from being super close to the customer and they need a team that gets really close to the customer. So how do you delegate getting close to the customer? You provide them data. You provide that team with data and a system to work on that data. You need inputs of data in and outputs of decisions that come out at a clip, at a fast clip. So leadership, the product owner, like when you have a startup, Kevin, you know this, when you have a startup, it's the it's the CEO that's insanely close to the problem. But as you grow, if you grow 100, 200 people, you do not get close to the problem. You are a, way above the system. You're you're the operator, and then you're the board, and then you're like you're you're far. You have to create systems for the the people working to get close to the the customer. The system is the culture of experimentation, or that's one system. Let's say. Well, it's funny because I find myself on both sides of the equation. You know, I'm I'm in leadership, so my team has to convince me of certain things that they want to get changed, and then I'm trying to convince clients because we're on the agency side, and it's it's very difficult to get huge institutions to change their ways when there's management at cross purposes, and in the world of finance, there's legal and compliance as well as business and marketing, and there's just there may be one team that really wants to make a shift, but you can't convince product if marketing has an idea. And then the engineers have to be convinced if product is convinced. So there's just, you know, I think that you're right. Data is at the heart of it all because without a set of data that says, this is where we think it's going to go. And here's the data to prove it. It's just a hypothesis, you know, and it's just not enough. It's just not enough. So it sounds like if I'm driving home the point here, you really feel that data drives everything, almost every decision. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's not people. It's not product. It's not, it's, it's data. 
Well, I'll ask you one more question on that. I know it's, I know it gets really fine tuned, but if you're say in, in the agency world and you have a client that's resistant to the change, what is the best way to get them on board to experiment, like just to start using a different kind of data than perhaps what they are using? If you know in your heart, your conviction is, hey, I really think this is the direction we need to go and you have the data to support it. Do you have any recommendations on how to sort of fight one data against another to prove your point? I'm big into mental models um, and I've been thinking about them lately here. The mental model here is knowing is not enough, right? Even if you know that it's the right path, it's not enough. You have to, you have to show it. And okay, show through data, but your question, Ben, like how do you show through data? In this case, I think it's value-based selling. So you have, a, you have the problem, you have the result, you have the value, and you'd be like, this is like, I would propose $2 million on the table that we're leaving on the table. This is what, what solving this or making this loop faster will give us. And this, so this is value-based selling. This is sales, I think. So you use the data to articulate that value metric, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask you one question that we like to ask everybody is, is what's your big prediction for the next five years when it comes to your world? I think that it's funny that my mind right now is around content. And it's funny because I told you I'm not a content marketer uh, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm very inspired and, and fascinated with content pipelines right now. So I'm not a content marketer, but my head is like in there and <laughs> in that world randomly. And because of ChatGPT, because of AI being connected to online content explicitly, uh, I think that's these are the ingredients for a lot of change in this world, in that world of like content uh, marketing, uh, the world of SEO, et cetera. That's a very interesting world. The world that I'm in a little bit more directly around like digital surface optimization and causal influence related to that, I don't think it's going to change all that much, actually. I think this whole like esoteric, conversation around like change management and like organizational structure, that's still going to be the same conversation in five years. But what's going to be different, I think, is in five years, like how SEO and content marketing agencies function. I don't think they're going out of business or anything, but how they function and how they organize content, like value within content is going to be really interesting. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time today. We love to geek out on this stuff as much as anybody and try to help content teams that are sort of sifting through all this, you know, navigating this world they find themselves in and folks like yourself make it a lot easier to understand. Yeah, well, I appreciate it as well. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Rachel. You're welcome. Let's do this. So, Rach, that was a fun conversation. It was. Remember when you talked about the portfolio? Yeah, experimentation portfolio. Okay. Like taking a portfolio approach to your experimentation. Kevin, you're the trader here, so I could be going a little bit off the cuff, but the three like stocks, quote unquote, in your experimentation portfolio would be iterative experiments, significant experiments, and disruptive experiments. And so you have to decide how much money, literally, but sometimes you're allocating to those three options and build out that portfolio. And if you only have 100%, what gets what percentage of your time yeah. and attention? Yeah. What percentage of your portfolio? It's almost like a balanced portfolio approach. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this resonates with me as, you know, like the classic portfolio investment is a certain percentage in stocks, bonds, and yep. cash, right? Exactly. And cash is giving you most conservative. But at the end of the day, so he talked about iterative, he talked about significant, and he talked about disruptive experimentation. Obviously, disruptive is the one that gets, that could 
completely move a company into, you can change the way a company runs just off of disruption. But if you get that disruption wrong, you don't want to be allocating too many dollars, but you shouldn't allocate zero. There should be, always should be a level of money being invested in, in disruptive experimentation. Iterative dis- experimentation is definitely data-driven, data-data-driven, yes. not just qualitative, but quantitative. And that is, you're going a certain way, things might need a little tweak, you try something new, you test it, you measure it, you see if that works, you, you get a little tick up, and you do that over and over and over again, right? Like mm-hmm. the results of something start to wane, like the, the good results, so you have to tweak, and you, you know, you're kind of constantly changing. The significant changes is interesting, because I think that middle category can create a lot of strife when yeah. it's not quite as disruptive because you're not suggesting a wholesale change, but you're suggesting a big enough change that makes people uncomfortable. And when you're yeah. an agency like ours and you're working with large clients and there's a lot of you know managers that cross purposes one another, or you're dealing with different departments like there's marketing and product and engineering and legal and compliance, and you're running a content agency and you're trying to get somebody to change, that's significant. Because they may say no just because there's no resources to go ahead and make a page change in your website right? Mm-hmm. You have to get in line in the queue, but you know that you need to do make this change now. So you've got to collect some data. And that may be tricky for agencies to collect their own data outside of their clients. So yeah, I know we're getting a little little esoteric here, but uh, yeah, I think that the, the experimentation portfolio makes sense. So I mean, I think yeah. mind, that that's a great, great looking approach. Yeah. I like that way of looking at it for sure. I do too. Now he did say Data rules everything. Now, I might sort of bend that a little bit in my in my view that disruption can come from data, but a lot of times when we get a crazy idea off the top of our head, we're not really referring to a data source or thinking. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. But you, but he's right though. Like maybe we didn't realize at a subconscious level that data is is sort of feeding that. You know, there's the little data voice in our head that's saying this is going to work. And the reason we have the hypothesis in the first place is because there's been something in the past to suggest that something's going to work, right? It's not just a completely new idea without any data reference. But I think data in this case is really more data in your head. Because <laughs> when I come up with a crazy idea, I don't really know if it's going to work. I just have a gut feeling. I think what he was almost starting to get at at the end there is that data doesn't just have to be hard numbers in a spreadsheet that you have pulled from some sort of analytics tool, right? That sometimes, I think especially when it comes to the big changes, data is the act of qualifying and quantifying your lived experiences with something in a way. I love what you just said. It was so eloquently put. It's not just numbers, but it's the it's not just quantitative, but it's the qualitative stuff. It's like things that have validated our experiences. So there's like almost like saying, there's like a series of wins that lead up mm-hmm. to the point where you come up with a really original idea. And though you may think in your head there's no data to support that, you know that there's been all these wins. So that's the data. Exactly. You know, so I like that. I like how he was sort of playing both sides. You know, see, you know, for, he is definitely like the quant geek type, but we love that. We love that. We need that. Mm-hmm. But if he's saying data drives everything, he's probably also referring to the qualitative data. That yeah. You're suggesting. I think so. So my aha moment was it's it's not always just numbers on the spreadsheet. You know what? I'm just going to say ditto. Yeah. I was going to ditto that. I think that was probably the most important part of that was realizing that, yeah, data does drive everything. 
this mm-hmm. is the first shift in my thinking that I realize that the data is everything, but it can be qualitative. And how is it qualitative? Is mm-hmm. through our past experiences leading up to a particular gut instinct or what we think is gut is actually yeah. data driven. That's yeah. a really cool way. That never I've never thought of it that way before, but I like that. Yeah. Like that. So I am a data geek after all. Nobody who knew me five years ago would agree. <laughs> I just think it's a really validating, you know, it like is. if yeah, if you're a gut decision maker, like in a world that is like really data centric, it can be easy to be like, oh, I don't know, I, you know, trust yourself. You have this, yeah. that feeling for a reason. Dig into it yeah. and find out why. Well, I know that I'm part of a culture of experimentation. You guys experiment all the time. I mean, we come up with new tools every single day. Yeah. It's fun finding the new stuff. It is. It's like new toys. It's like Christmas morning. It is. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Let's do this. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hello Content, produced by the brilliant Rachel Witzel. Our theme music is by Cake Without Candles. We'll be back for another episode next week, wherever you listen to podcasts. In the meantime, you can check us out online at t3custom.com. That's the letter T, the number three, custom.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.